In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the second Sunday of Advent, and so we are preparing for our celebration of the coming of Christ and His uh, birth, and so we are also preparing for His second coming, His coming again. And when we, when we say that, when we talk about these two preparations, a preparation for a, a celebration of something that's happened in the past, and a preparation for something that's happening in the future, uh, the automatic question comes up, how is it that we understand time, especially time in Scripture? And the way that we understand time is different than many other uh, groups uh, understand time. Most moderns, at least if you ask most modern people how they think of time, they think of it as being strictly linear. There's a past, a present, and a future. We're going in one direction. There are things that we can do in our lives or other people can do that can affect the trajectory, but we're always moving forward. And there's really no way to, uh, to touch the present or the past. We're removed from it. We're, we're moving away from it. Pagans, and this is uh, native people's all around the world, so no matter what pagan native people group you think of, have a circular understanding of time. There's no progress in it. It's always a repetition. It's very fatalistic. It's very deterministic. There's really nothing that you can do to get away from your fate or what's been determined for you. And so we see this in stories all across the world from all kinds of people groups. Really, while most people today would uh, say that they ascribe to a modern understanding of time, that we're always moving forward, most people today really are pagan in their thinking. And there's a fatalistic, uh, nihilistic way that people talk about the world. It's determined, what can we do? It was just their time, it was meant to be. The little man can't get ahead, that's just who I am, right? So the way that I was born, or who I was born to, or where I am determines everything. There's really nothing that I can do. That's a pagan understanding of time. The Christian understanding of time is different than both of them. It's a combination, if you will, of both, but a perfection of both. The Christian understanding of time is a spiral. We are moving forward. There is a future that we're moving towards, uh, and we are repeating. There is a repetition in salvation history. We see those 40 days in the wilderness and those 40 days of washing of Noah and the, the 40 years in the wilderness of the people of Israel. We see those repeated over and over again. We see God calling his people over and over again. We see him disciplining them over and over again. And so we see in salvation history, in the reading of scripture, this repetition of these themes and these patterns while we're moving forward. And we do understand that what we do and what we choose and the actions that we have uh, make an impact. But that impact is felt within these patterns of uh, holy salvation. And so uh, Christian time is a spiraling time. And that's very important for us to understand when we're reading things like the prophet Isaiah, because again, as moderns, we want everything to read like a newspaper, right? For us, that's the perfect kind of writing. We want to know what, when, where, why, as soon as you can tell me. And we want it told in a chronological order. We want it to be causal. Because this happened, and because they did this, then this happened. And because they did this, this happened. That's how we want to read our books. That's how we want stories. We really want everything to have a journalistic flair to it, don't we? Then we turn to the scriptures and we find out they're not writing like that at all. Isaiah does not see himself as a journalist. He's not just sitting back 
back writing, God did this, and then he did that, and then he did that. Isaiah is writing in this spiraling time. He's telling us what God has done and what he is doing and what he's done before. And it's in this repetitious kind of a theme that we read uh, the scriptures. And so at the same time, Isaiah is talking about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. He talks about all of them all together as we're moving through salvation history. The amazing thing is how hopeful uh, he is in this, uh, what we call, apocalyptic theme, right? The apocalyptic themes of scripture are, uh, God is going to remake everything. He's going to break the pot, he's going to put it in the bucket of water, and he's going to make it new, right? That's apocalypse. Mountains get brought low, valleys get raised up, the young shall lead them, everything's reversed. God breaks everything and he remakes everything. He remakes us so that we become a priesthood. He's talking to us here in chapter 40 when he says, comfort my people. We're a priesthood of all believers. He's talking to you and I. He's saying our job is to comfort one another. And not the way the world does. You're great. You're just fine the way you are. No, we're not. We're not fine the way that we are. We need God and His salvation. We need the Holy Spirit to restore us. And so the hope we have, the comforting that we do, is in the name of the Lord. Comfort them in the name of the Lord, right? Speak tenderly, because she has received from the Lord hands double for all her sins. In other words, the Lord is going to restore us out of sin and bring us into everlasting life. And he tells us to prepare for these things, to prepare uh, for the way of the Lord. And that um, even though the Lord is going to remake, that he's going to break that pot, that he's going to soak it again in water, that he's going to reshape us. He's reshaping us for something more new and beautiful than we can imagine. And we see this perfected in the resurrected body of Christ. Uh, if, If you can understand the resurrected body of Christ, then you can understand what he's talking about in the apocalypse. I can't say that I do. This body eats, and yet it walks through, through walls. Sometimes people recognize this resurrected body. Sometimes people don't. It's amazing. It's unique. It's new. It's this remade thing. And the Lord isn't doing that just to Christ's body, but he's doing it to our bodies, and he's doing it to all of creation, to the stars and the moon and the sun and the earth and the grass. All things are being remade and made new in him. And he tells us that all these things happen uh, for us to behold them. Behold is a great word. Uh, There's a couple of Aramaic words that we translate as behold in English. And this one has a, a hypothetical sense to it. There's this great hypothetical theological word that we've talked about before, if, right? If is in this word behold. He's really saying see if. See if the Lord does what he says he's going to do. That's a different kind of a place to be, isn't it? To tell people, see if the Lord does what he says he's going to do. You be obedient and see if the Lord responds. You read your scripture and see if the Lord speaks to you. You prepare for the coming of the Lord and see if the Lord transforms your life. See if he's faithful. So it's a hypothetical, this behold. 
We're waiting to see, but we're not waiting by sitting back and twiddling our thumbs. We're waiting in a diligence and an activity where we're preparing for the the way of the Lord. To prepare for the way of the Lord again is to be like a host, to say, this is what the Lord needs to come into my life. This is the time that I need to set for him. This is the scriptures that I need to set before him. We have to be ready. We're preparing for the way of the Lord. And the only reason to really prepare is if we want somebody to come. We don't prepare for people that we don't want to come or that we don't really believe will come. But if we really believe the Lord is coming into our lives, if we really believe the Lord is speaking to us today, see if. Sit down and open your Bible and close your eyes and see if the Lord speaks to you. Prepare our hearts for the coming of the Lord. And this is what is fulfilled in Christ. This is what St. Mark is saying is fulfilled. He gives these words from Isaiah and from the prophet Malachi. Again, he's saying, uh, see if the Lord has done what he said he was going to do. Isaiah said he was going to come. Malachi said he was going to come. And he comes mighty. How does he come mighty? As a shepherd. As a mighty shepherd. It's ridiculous, right? A mighty shepherd? It's ridiculous. It's apocalyptic. Shepherds aren't mighty. Shepherds are gentle. And they shepherd gentle creatures. They carry their creatures in their arms. They nurse them like children. They care for them like these small, delicate creatures that they are. And yet the Lord comes mighty as a shepherd, ready to care for us and to caress us and to hold us, uh, to remake us new in His image. And St. John is coming to prepare us for this, again, like the prophet Isaiah, like the prophet Elijah. And like Elijah, he comes not as one of these uh, learned professors from the temple in Jerusalem. He's not wearing the beautiful robes with the indications of his status. He comes as the natural man. He comes as this wilderness man who's only reliant upon the Lord. And he's saying, this is what you have to do. Throw away all of these other things that you might trust in. Throw away all the things of society, all of the things that the world tells you you can rely on, and simply wait upon the Lord. See if he speaks to you. And in this, St. John the Baptist prepares us for the fullness of baptism. Sometimes we think of baptism as just being repentance. That's a thread of baptism, that if we pull it out, the tapestry gets unmade. Uh, Sometimes we think it's just washing of water. And if we just pull that out, the tapestry is unmade. Sometimes we emphasize the coming of the Holy Spirit and that it's this charismatic experience. If we pull that out and separate it from repentance, again, the tapestry is unmade. St. John prepares us for everything that we need to do in repentance. Number one, we have to acknowledge that the Lord is coming again, that he is coming to remake us. He's this potter. So we have to repent. We have to say the pot that we are now is not the pot that the Lord intended us to be, right? We wanted us to to hold better water. He wanted us to be holy and righteous. And so we have to know that this is not the way the Lord wants our lives to be. So we have to repent. We have to be seeking the ways of the Lord. Then we're washed in water. And then he says, that Christ will bring us the Holy Spirit, that we will receive the Holy Spirit. So any talking about baptism, any talking about walking in the Lord that doesn't include repentance, that doesn't include the washing of sins, that doesn't include the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, isn't a full understanding of baptism and our life in Christ. And St. Peter warns us about that. He says, watch out for these people that are uh, teaching lawlessness about the scriptures. And do you notice how he's already including St. Paul's letters in scripture? 
He says the letters of Paul and other scripture. Do you notice that? I mean, this is like 60 AD, and he's already establishing a canon, and he's already establishing Paul's letters as canon. And he tells us that when we read scripture, we have to be ready to not fall into lawlessness, but the ways of God. We can fall into lawlessness in a couple of different ways. We can read these things and say, oh, God has saved me. Uh, God is so great and so good. I've been saved. Now I can just do whatever I want. And then he's going to come again, right? We see people uh, living their their so-called Christian lives like this, right? They get this kind of, uh, you know, once saved, always saved. I said the words in prayer. I'm good to go, right? Everything's supposed to be great in my life. Wrong, right? That's not the way that the Lord has us uh, and teaches us. We're supposed to be uh, with fear and trembling coming before him, constantly seeking him, constantly repenting, constantly moving forward in him. So there's a kind of lawlessness that says, uh, God has done everything and there's nothing for me to do. There's another kind of lawlessness that says, um, God's not going to do anything. You've got to do everything, right? You've got to do everything. And that's the kind of lawlessness that a certain heretic by the name of Arius was teaching in the 3rd century AD. Arius was teaching that uh, Christ was really not God, right? He taught that we were all children of God by nature and that uh, there was a time when Christ was not. He said, how can a father and a son uh, be the same, right? A father always comes before a son. What Arius didn't understand is that God can only beget God. That is, eternity can only beget eternity, and Christ is eternal, begotten from his eternal Father. And all of the saints gathered together, the bishops were called from all around the world in 325 AD, and they were unanimous in telling Arius uh, that what he was saying was wrong. And he stood alone against those 315 bishops from all over the world, from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, that gathered together. And today, as it turns out, on December 6th, we remember one bishop who was there, who's one of my favorites, a guy by the name of Nicholas. He was the youngest man ever to be ordained a bishop. He was only 25 years old from, uh, from Lycia and Myrna. And he was so enraged by what Arius was saying that he stood up and he punched Arius in the face. This was punishable by death because the emperor was there. Constantine was in the room. And anyone who struck anyone in the presence of the emperor, creating lawlessness, was sentenced to death. They stripped the robes off of Nicholas. They removed his gospel book from his hand. They put him into the dungeon. And they went on with the proceedings at Nicaea. That night, every single bishop and the emperor received a vision of the Holy Mother of God, the Virgin Mary, going to Nicholas in the prison and restoring the soul to him and replacing the scriptures into his hand. And when they all woke the next morning, they all realized that they had the exact same dream. They rushed into the prison and they restored Nicholas to his rightful place in the assembly. Did Nicholas with pride say, yeah, I hit him? He repented. He repented and he apologized to his fellow bishops and he apologized to the emperor. But they all knew that he had done it with zeal in his heart for the truth of the gospel and of the saving work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
be whole. See if, see if the Lord will be faithful. Go to your scriptures. Go to your places of prayer. Wait upon the Lord and see if he will speak. God is faithful.